Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, Zara here. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Abu Bakr Sirajuddin Cook and Brother Rami Dawood about the history of Islam in Australia. So this is probably the first episode that we've done that was requested by so many people. Um, it came about primarily through an Instagram post that we did a few months back about one of the oldest mosques in Australia. And we had messages from people asking if we could do a full episode looking at the history of Muslims in the country. Thankfully, we've been able to do so with two guests who know a lot about the topic. Um, Dr. Abu Bakr, I'll turn to you first. Could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background? Uh, I'm Wasi, Dr. Abu Bakr Sirajuddin Cook. Um, I came to Islam uh, about 17 years ago. Um, my research uh, initially started, my, my, my doctoral research started off on looking at the work of uh, Ibn Atal al-Iskandari uh, and the Shaddariya Tariqa. Um, since then, I've uh, developed uh, a deeper interest in the history of Islam in Australia and writing on uh, comparative spiritualities between Islam and Australia's indigenous spiritualities, and also looking at the history of Sufism in Australia. My name is Rami Dawood. I'm a newly graduated medical doctor who lives in Melbourne, Australia. And I come from a multicultural background. I'm half Egyptian, half Filipino. I grew up in uh, a farm in Saudi Arabia. I lived in the United States, uh, where I studied, and um, uh, also um, eventually moving to Australia after getting married. And interesting uh, anecdote, the first uh, place that I've lived in in Australia with my wife is Broken Hill, which is um, uh, an interesting uh, aspect of this history of Australia that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Uh, and that's where I met uh, Wasi, Dr. Abubakar, and his community, mashallah. So we'll hopefully discuss the work that you're both doing together a little later on. But first, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Dr. Abu Bakr, I'll ask you first. Um, how far does Islam's history, um, or rather the history of Muslims in Australia, go? And what was the first kind of point of contact that we know of? Well, that's a very difficult question to ask because we, we don't know. We, we honestly don't know. Um, we have hints. But as of yet, we're still sort of coming across concrete evidence. Uh, one of the thoughts is perhaps the Chinese were the earliest Muslims to grace Australia's lands. Uh, there's a possibility that uh, Admiral Zheng He uh, and his lieutenant Ma Huan uh, during the Ming Dynasty uh, visited Australia. They were both famous navigators and explorers between 1405 and 1433. Uh, originally, uh, the admiral's name was Ma, which is a Chinese derivative of Muhammad, uh, which would later be replaced by Zheng, a name conferred upon him by the Ming Emperor as he rose to the highest possible rank for a eunuch. And his voyages have been uh, well chronicled. 
And we know that he reached uh, Timor, which is just 400 miles north of Darwin, pointing to the possibility of Muslim contact with Australia during this period. In support of that, uh, there was a discovery of a Chinese figurine in Darwin in 1879, wedged in the roots of a banyan tree over a metre underground. But it's uncertain whether or not this was uh, Zheng He or some other Ming sailor. The next uh, point of possible contact uh, <clears throat> is the, uh, the Beijini uh, of Northern Australian legend. Speculation on the identity of these peoples uh, is rife, uh, with some suggesting that they came from India, some from China, maybe Dutch or even Portuguese, and it remains one of the long-standing puzzles of Northern Australian history. Most of the evidence of these visitors to Australia is taken from oral histories, which state that the Beijini were not Mackison, as they had lighter skin and were followers of Allah. Aside from that, we don't have a great deal of concrete evidence on who these peoples were. Perhaps the first documented uh, contact of Muslims with Australia was the Mackesons. Uh, they had the earliest continuous occurrence, which started uh, prior to the 17th century. There are th thoughts that it went uh, earlier than that. Um, when the Mackesons, Muslims from modern-day Indonesia, travelled from northern Australia, where these fishermen engage in a range, engage with a range of indigenous peoples uh, along the north coast of Australia. They were here on an annual uh, visit uh, between December and April uh, to the northern Australian coastline uh, to fish for trepang, or otherwise known as sea cucumber, which they'd sell in the Chinese markets. Uh, this con occurred continuously uh, until the Sa South Australian Customs outlawed their visits in 1906. Uh, we have really good evidence of their uh, early arrivals uh, with Mackison boats being depicted in uh, Indigenous rock art, which has been dated to the 16th or early 17th century, or at least that's the date of the beeswax that has covered the, the rock art. So there's a possibility that they uh, arrived in Australia much earlier than that. Um, the Mackisons were in contact with widely dispersed tribes in the in the top end and their language became the uh, common language along the coast uh, the Mackesons visits left profound imprints on the cultures and language of the far north shores with uh, many uh, words to this day being still used in in those areas um, a key one is uh, rupiah which is used for for money and there's also some really interesting uh, remnant vocabulary uh, of the Northern Australian Indigenous rituals that is derived from Muslim prayer, which have uh, very interesting and very close uh, phonetic correspondences. And there are some sacred and secret incantations of the Northern Australian shores that allude to Allah. So there's a really rich uh, history of Muslim contact up there, and a lot of the uh, indigenous peoples have this uh, cultural memory of the Mackesons arriving and trading and also some of them travelling back to Indonesia with them. And so there's uh, quite a lot of shared culture in that. The next uh, major point of contact of Muslims with Australia was the Afghan camel drivers brought to Australia between 1860 and 1910. 
who were the earliest of the many ethnic groups that have come to constitute Muslim present in today's Australia. And the Kamalis made really important contributions both to Australia as a nation and also to Australian Islam. Between 1870 and 1920, approximately 20,000 camels and two to 4,000 camelliers landed in Australia. They came to Australia on temporary work contracts and their camels were used as a major form of transport across much of mainland Australia, carrying supplies and mail across the country. For most of the camel drivers hailed from different provinces of what later became Pakistan and northern India, uh, some from Afghanistan, and there is evidence that some from Bangladesh. One of the most uh, interesting finds and, and quite uh, good pieces of evidence of the Bangladeshi cameleers is a book that was found here in Broken Hill at the mosque. It was correctly identified by Samia Khatum recently as a uh, Bengali Sufi text of uh, poetry and stories relating to the prophets, peace be upon them all. It previously had laid dormant in the Broken Hill Mosque with a little sign saying it was a Quran, and had even been uh, listed as such in, in some of the books on that researched uh, early Camelier history. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was actually expecting your answer to begin with the Cameliers, so I wasn't even aware of all the history that kind of took place before that. With regards to the Cameliers themselves, what would you say their legacy or their kind of contribution to Australia has been? With regards to the Cameliers, they were used to treat, to, to tame the camels and to use the camels. Because uh, prior to the Cameliers coming over, there was one camel that was brought across. And whilst the European explorers could see the use of the camel for the arid land that they were trying to transverse, they didn't have a great deal of skill in managing camels, which is why the Cameliers were brought across. Much of it, Australia is a vast and, and very arid land. So when you have, I mean, th th there's nice places along the coastline, which is a lovely and green. But a large part of the, the centre of it is desert. And so when you're trying to cover that land and understand it and look for you know, minerals and, and other precious things that they could export and sell, having transport that doesn't require a great deal of water when it's so scarce and can carry heavy loads becomes really, really important. So am I right in thinking that the descendants of these Cameliers are still in Australia now? Um, or did most of them kind of return back to their home countries once their job was complete? Uh, both. Uh, some, so with the development of roads and lorries, trucks transporting uh, food and mail and stuff, which is what the Cameliers did uh, with their camel trains, um, they were the lifeblood of Australia in terms of carrying supplies and, and mail across the country. They really opened up and, and made Australia as a settlement uh, possible. When the camels sort of became uh, superseded with motor vehicle transport, the Cameliers, some of them returned home. Uh, others turned to different uh, forms of employment, starting businesses. Uh, some went to the gold fields. Um, 
So some of them have uh, put down very deep roots here. And as a result of it, we do have descendants of the Camilleers uh, existing both within Broken Hill and, and further afield. Uh, let's talk about Broken Hill then. Um, how long has there been a Muslim community there? Well, interestingly, one of the first Camilleers to come across to Australia was a man named Dost Muhammad. And he spent time, uh, he worked on the Birkin Wills expedition, which was the first attempt to go from north to south. Well, the idea was they were going to go from north to south and back again uh, through the centre of Australia. The Birkin Wills didn't make it. They died on the way purely because they didn't want to listen to the Camilleers and refused to engage with Indigenous tribes that lived in those areas. So they ended up having a, sort of a porridge that turned to cement in their stomachs and as a result of uh, that, they uh, passed away. Uh, but D Dost Muhammad spent time in a little town called Menindi, which is about 150 kilometres outside of Broken Hill, and he was buried out there. Um, the exact time that the Camilleers came to Broken Hill, um, there are debates, but it was before the 20th century. Um, and they were quite numerous in Broken Hill, um, setting up several camel camps and uh, also uh, setting up uh, two mosques that we had in Broken Hill. Both of those mosques are still in existence. The West uh, mosque got moved from that as the town expanded and incorporated the, the camel camps, which were originally situated on the very outskirts of the town. As the town expanded and the camel camps sort of decreased in prominence, uh, the mosque in the West Camel Camp was moved initially to the cemetery and then uh, I think in the 1960s, over to where it currently resides, which is behind the North Camel Camp Mosque. So originally uh, there were two prominent camel camps, uh, the West Camel Camp being at Picton, which is was three miles out of the, the town centre, and the North Camel Camp, um, which is in the sort of northernmost corner of, of the town, um, was two miles from the, the city centre. So the camel ears were pushed right to the edge of town, even though they were so vital in um, providing transport of goods and mail, both for Broken Hill, but also sort of further afield. Uh, pushed to the edge of town by white settlers, you mean? Most definitely by the European settlers of Broken Hill. Uh, they didn't want them in town. They saw them as dirty. Uh, the camels uh, took up quite a bit of space and... If you've spent time around livestock, there is a particular smell that's associated with livestock. So they, they weren't wanted in sort of the, the prominent areas of, of the township at the time. So you mentioned earlier the manuscript that was found in the mosque. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Um, and am I right in thinking that's the same one that yourself and Brother Rami have been writing about? Uh, no, that's a different manuscript okay. altogether. Uh, so the manuscript that was uh, the that Samir Khatoum worked on uh, is a much larger book that was uh, written in Bengali. Um, she correctly identified, she came out to Broken Hill in her research because she saw that it had uh, Bengali writing on it and she's of, of Bengali heritage. 
and she realized that it wasn't what it had been previously labeled as it wasn't a quran it was a, a book of, of poetry and stories of the prophets um and so her work was attempting to understand how that manuscript could have ended up at broken hill and one of her ideas is that some of the Camilleers were of uh, Bengali heritage. Rami, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now, um, if I may. Uh, could you tell us about the work that yourself and Dr. Abu Bakr have been doing together? Yeah, so as uh, Brother Abu Bakr was talking about, there's also another manuscript that was found in the Broken Hill Mosque. Uh, the Broken Hill Mosque was built in 1887 by the Afghan Camilleers. But interestingly enough, there was a, a, a manuscript written there that is preserved by the Broken Hill Historical Society uh, that clearly has been identified to be published in the year 1322 of the Hijri calendar, which is about 1901 uh, of the Common Era. And this is a, a fascinating document because it shows, it's written in Arabic script, but it shows that the Afghan Camilleers, to some degree, were associated with a, uh, a, a, a an order, a spiritual order, and in this case, the Qadari Tariqa of Sheikh Abdul Qadar and Jinani. Uh, and the work that Abu Bakr and I uh, have, have, have done was to uh, translate the manuscript into English and uh, write a commentary uh, on it, which, uh, alhamdulillah, has been approved uh, for publication by Brill, uh, their, ju- their Journal of Sufi Studies, uh, in the upcoming uh, April 2022. That's fascinating. Um, how recently was the manuscript found in the mosque? It, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Abu Bakr, would you, would you know? <laughs> uh, so my father has been involved with the mosque and... Uh, looking at uh, trying to find like better ways of preserving the heritage that's there. And part of the tasks that he's been given is to identify the various books that have been left there over the year by various tourists and, and stuff like that, and also have a better understanding of the Camellia artefacts. So he invited me along to help him with this task. And in going through it, I came across a very small handwritten manuscript and instantly, after opening the first page and seeing some of the parts of, of what it said, uh, I became very excited because there's long been there's long been views that the Camilleers were connected with Sufism, and most books on the Camilleers sort of hint at it, but there's been no real concrete evidence. Uh, in in fact, in in my work in tracing the history of Sufism in Australia, uh, some of the supposed pieces of evidence that connect the Camilleers with Sufism have not been exactly what they've been reported to be. And so uh, earlier this year when I came across this manuscript, um, was very excited because it looks to be to date the strongest evidence that the Camilleers were, or at least some of the Camilleers, were connected with the practice of Tassawuf. 
So would you say that this practice has continued in Australia and um, there's like an unbroken chain kind of leading back to the Camellias or is that not really clear? Uh, I just I just wanted to hint at the content of the manuscript. It, it's actually um, an ijazah or a, a license that was written by possibly one of the uh, sheikhs that was living in Broken Hill at the time, possibly the imam of the mosque. Uh, but it is an ijazah to a murid who is coming to him seeking uh, uh, not just spiritual barakah, but also a silsila that connects him back to the Prophet wasallam, and also uh, requesting a, a type of litany that he can recite uh, on a day-to-day basis. So that continuation is hinted at in, in the manuscript itself, but whether that chain can be identified as uh, present-day Australia amongst Muslims now, that's something that I, I, I am not too sure. Maybe Abu Barker can explain. Well, it, it's something that... Uh... I've been trying to to look at it's it's a, a personal area of interest and an area that I think is understudied and it is challenging given the nature of of Sufism it's quite often or historically has not been uh, outwardly visible and so tracing that is very difficult to say the least in terms of the, the practice of, of Sufism within Australia, currently you'll find all of the major turuk have groups or zawiyas in Australia. In Broken Hill, we have the Borhaniya Dasukiya Shadriya Tariqa. We have the Amaraj Sufi Islamic Study Centre, which has a prayer area, library, bookshop, bakery associated with it. Um, so the practice of Tasawwuf is alive in Australia today. If we're talking about particular chains of transmission uh, being continuous since their arrival in Australia, that is a, a, a very difficult question to, to answer based on current available evidence. Uh, Rami, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, so the only thing that I would contribute to the conversation is the the very contents of the manuscript itself, itself, which I find very, very fascinating. And when Abu Bakr invited me to work on the project, I was blown away by uh, just the first few pages. Um, so I don't know if we have enough time to go into the actual manuscript, uh, but if there is time, I think reading a few passages would be a nice insight for the listeners of what the contents are. Yeah, please, please do go ahead. Um, so uh, as mentioned before, the the publication of this manuscript was in 1901. The uh, introduction of the manuscript uh, states that um, uh, he, essentially the author is identifying himself as uh, a Sayyid Ahmed al-Qadiri, uh, the Sayyid or the, the master, but also could be translated as a descendant of the Prophet وسلم, Ahmed al-Qadiri, who is a the servant of his grandfather, uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al Jilani? So he's uh, he's immediately getting the reader to uh, recognize who he is and who he's connected to, um, and he then talks about um, he gives beautiful praises of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the introduction and uh, salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and then he gives his entire 
genealogy, which I find very interesting uh, because, well, number one, he traces it back to Sheikh Abdul Qadir al Jilani, uh, which he refers to as a Sayyid al Sadat, the Master of Masters, Qutb al Wujud, the Pole of Existence, Al Durat al Bayda, the White Pearl. Malik al-Dhimmat al-Mutasarrafin, the possessor of the reins of those who have authority, uh, and all these beautiful, beautiful um, uh, uh, names of uh, or honorific titles of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Junani. Uh, and then not only that, but then he goes uh, further, uh, connecting his lineage to Imam Hassan, Imam Ali, alayhim salam up to Ismail. And Ibrahim, السلام, and then all the way back to Adam. Uh, and what's very interesting is that he doesn't just stop at Adam, السلام, uh, but he wants to identify or get the reader to know that he is somebody who not just knows his lineage or genealogy, but also knows Islamic scholarship, uh, such as cosmology and, and, and theology. And then he continues saying that وَآدَمْ مِنَ التُرَابِ وَالتُرَابِ مِنَ الْأَرْضِ وَالْأَرْضِ مِنَ الزَّبَدِ وَالزَّبَدِ مِنَ الْمَوْجِ وَالْمَوْجِ مِنَ الْمَاءِ وَالْمَاءِ مِنَ الدُّرَّةِ وَالدُّرَّةِ مِنَ الْقُدْرَةِ وَالْقُدْرَةِ مِنَ الْإِرَادَةِ وَالْإِرَادَةِ مِنَ عِلْمِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى That Adam is from dust, dust is from the earth, earth is from the sea foam, sea foam is from the, the wave, the wave is from the water, the water is from the atom, the atom is from the power of God. The power of God is from the will of God, and the will of God is from the eternal knowledge of God. So he connects his 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 being, his essence, all the way back to the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And then he identifies this person who comes to him, uh, requesting again this litany that we've talked about, um, the, the 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 prescription of a specific widow to recite, and he he calls this uh, person. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ad-Darwish, the Dervish, Ahmed Akbar Khan al-Afghani, the uh, Ahmed Akbar Khan al-Afghani, the Afghan. So we know that this person of origin is from possibly of that community. Uh, the, the Obviously, when we say Afghan cameleers, we don't just mean people from Afghanistan. There were people from uh, Balochistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, some from Egypt, some from Syria as well. But this is specifically identifying somebody from the Afghan community. And uh, and then he talks about uh, his uh, ijaza uh, that goes back to the Prophet Sallallahu or his uh, uh, license. Uh, and he ends with the honorific titles of Sheikh Abdul Qadir and Jilani. And lastly, the names of his sons and daughters, um, the sons and daughters of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. You know, I think that stories like this are really important for immigrant Muslim communities in non-Muslim countries especially, just because I think it allows people to feel kind of um, a connection with like a wider Islamic heritage that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise feel. So thank you for sharing that with us. The other thing I was trying to understand before we kind of start wrapping up um, do we know what the interaction between these early Muslims and native indigenous tribes looks like? Um, are there any kind of recorded instances of those um, interactions? Uh, again, being sort of 
not the victors of, of history, if, as, as we know, sort of history is written by the, the victors. There is scant evidence. Um, what scant evidence we have, uh, most definitely there were uh, interactions. Uh, in, as I said, in the case of the Mackesons, there was there is evidence of, of cultural and spiritual exchange. Uh, in the case of other Indigenous peoples uh, and the Cameliers, that is a harder question to answer. Um, but we do have evidence of the Cameliers uh, both marrying uh, Indigenous women and also uh, white women as well. There are newspaper articles on on the surprise of finding uh, white wives of the Cameliers uh, having been published, and we also have uh, more personal histories uh, of Indigenous peoples. Uh, Peter Stevenson talks about uh, what she calls kinversion. It's not conversion, it's kinversion, uh, by, by which she sort of defines that as someone who has a Muslim in their heritage. And a lot of her work has focused on Indigenous peoples and their connection to uh, Australia's Muslim heritage as well. So are there any aspects of uh, Muslim history in Australia that you feel, you know, should be better understood? Like, is there anything else you would want to add about that history or that heritage? For me, it's a very interesting and very rich heritage that is understudied and largely unknown. Um, there are a few scholars who are working in it and they've each got their particular focuses. I think that uh, coming to it both with a, a scholarly eye but also with an Islamic eye provides uh, a deeper sort of understanding and a deeper vision of the materials that, that come to light that are quite often missed by those who only have sort of one of those lenses. And I think that a greater understanding of Australia's Muslim heritage would, I think, provide a greater appreciation both for non-Muslims in understanding the benefit that Muslims have made to Australia throughout its history, but also to Muslims who particularly second-generation, third-generation Muslims who may maybe feel a disconnect with their spiritual heritage to understand that Australia is part of the history of Islam and, in, and the history of Islam in Australia is an important part of the history of Australia and that would provide them a, a greater de deal of connect both with their spiritual heritage but also with their Australian heritage as well. So as my final question, um, could you tell us what the Muslim community in Australia looks like today? Depends on where you look. It really depends on where you look. We have, we have Muslims coming here every day from all around the world. We have second and third generation Muslims here. Um, but also, uh, if you look at the community in Broken Hill, a large portion of them are reverts. We are Caucasian Muslims. And that is quite often very surprising for uh, people that come and visit us. So for people who want to understand more about this history, um, what sort of sources would you recommend? 
And where can people find out more about the work that yourself and Rami are doing? So there's a, a few scholars uh, that have looked at various different things. Ian McIntosh is one who did a lot of work with the Indigenous peoples of uh, Northern Australia. He charts uh, a lot of the engagements from their perspective, which is very quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, as I said, uh, the work of uh, Peter Stevenson looks at uh, kinversion and how uh, having connection to uh, a Muslim ancestor plays out uh, amongst various peoples. Uh, Regina Gantar's work on the Camelies is quite interesting. Um, my work, which is uh, part of it, is, as I said earlier, about you know comparative studies of uh, Islam and Australia's Indigenous spiritualities and also the history of Sufism in Australia. Um, that's part of my, my areas of interest. Uh, my other areas of interest are various aspects of uh, Sufism. Um, all of my papers uh, can be accessed on my website, uh, au, or searching for me on researchgate or academia.edu. Um, but there are also... Uh, a number of uh, organisations in Australia that are starting to expand and develop and promote these sorts of things. Um, there's uh, an Islamic art museum. Um, there's other museums that are starting to put in permanent uh, displays on sort of the Camellia heritage and, and stuff like that. Um, but it also is, an, as, as I keep saying, it is an area that is, is understudied and the best way I would think would for people to connect to it is to look it up for themselves because there is so much to learn, so much to connect with and the more people that are looking at this, the more people that are finding things like manuscripts in a mosque, in a town, in the middle of the outback um, and then sort of producing papers on it, the more connected we become uh, as a community as a whole. Thank you for that. Um, I'll list all of those resources in our show notes so people can look them up from there. Thank you both so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, and thank you for sharing this really fascinating history with us. Thank you for having us, Zara. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening all of the resources and links mentioned in this episode can be found in our show notes we're everywhere on social media as sacred footsteps and on twitter as s footsteps <laughs>